Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Melbourne. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan and Lauren. Hello. George is on holidays. I think she... George has had the longest holiday of all time. Yeah. Girl, get your back here. Girl, we miss you. What are you doing? We need you here. (laughs) But she should be back this week, right? She's home tonight. I'm so excited. Yay. So we will be catching her next week and hopefully she'll bring all the amazing community events like she always does. Yeah. I don't know how she finds these events. She just... Looks and looks and... It's a special talent. Yeah. She's a special girl. Hmm. So um, today we have a really good show. Um, we're starting off... I think you're having a chat to Nasira. Can you tell us about... Yes, Nasa Mashni of the Australian-Palestinian Advocacy Network. I'm not sure if any of you were listening last week when, unfortunately, we had to cut our, short, our talk short. Uh, so Nasa has kindly agreed to rejoin us this week to keep talking about what is currently happening in Palestine because there is a lot happening in Palestine, as always. Um, and then we'll be chatting with Iris Lee, who is a writer and activist based on Kulin Nations land in Melbourne. Um, and she's also a presenter on 3CR's Queering the Air. So we're super excited to chat about TERFs with Iris. And then what have you got? Um, and then I will be chatting to um, uh, the Indigenous officer, Laura Watson, from ACTU. And we will be looking at the community development program. So we'll be trying to see what it is and how it disproportionately impacts the um, Indigenous and Torres Strait Island communities. Sounds like an incredible show. And now we're going to play a song by Alice Skye? Yes, we will, right after this CSA. The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defense fund that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash solidarity defense fund a 3cr supporter hi my name's sarah i love coming here because they offer vegan food hi my name is paul this is my first time at friends of the earth i think it's really awesome and the food's great really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. The time is... What is the time? I, I, 
7.04 a.m. Because I'm looking at the screen and it's giving me 7.03. So uh, we will be listening to a track by Alice Guy called 60%. That's such a lovely song. Thank you so much for picking that. Uh, my pleasure. It, uh, I think it's very apt at the moment. They did a bit of a speech at Falls Festival about how there, weren't, there aren't enough women um, being promoted and mm. given space on stage in the Australian music scene. And I think that song really powerfully explains why. They're yeah. awesome. Excellent, excellent. Mm. Oh, that was Camp Cope for anybody listening with the song The Opener. And before that, you heard um, from Alice Guy with her song 60%. And the album is called You Are The Mountain. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, the new International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Lest we forget, join us to commemorate the 176th anniversary of the execution of the two freedom fighters, Tanaminawai and Moorbohina, at the Tanaminawai and Moorbohina Monument, corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, Melbourne. Do you know the names of the first men hanged here in Melbourne town? Join us midday, Saturday the 20th of January 2018 and then walk with us to their last resting place in the Queen Victoria markets. The ceremony will be broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR, 3cr.org.au. Far from their ancestral homes down in Van Diemen's land They knew their lives would be in vain if they didn't take a stand And now we're going to hear an interview that Louise Sales did with John and Phil from Dirt Radio in relation to changes to gene tech regulations, which were mooted by the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator late last year because they were raising serious concerns. It's time to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty with Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. Uh, at the end of October, when the entire media was consumed by the high court rulings on dual citizenship, something that should have been very newsworthy just snuck by unnoticed. The Office of the Gene Technology Regulator here in Australia quietly emailed stakeholders with its proposed changes to gene technology regulations. Lou Sales, who we just heard just a minute ago, is the mm-hmm. campaign coordinator with Friends of the Earth's Emerging Tech Project, excuse me, Lou, and she's, she's here with Dirt Radio to explain what's happening. Lou, good morning and thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the program. And the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator, what are they, who are they, and what do they do? So the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator is responsible, it's the Australian agency that's responsible for regulating um, genetically modified organisms in the field. Um, genetically modified organisms in our food is slightly different, that's um, for ZAN's Food Standards Australia and New Zealand are responsible for regulating them. Now, one particular genetic modification technique is being seen by some as a real game changer, but in terms of biotech, it could end up being something of a Frankenstein monster. It's called CRISPR, and it looks like it may have little or no regulation in Australia. 
you're being you've been very concerned about this. Tell us about CRISPR. That's right. So CRISPR is a new genetic engineering technique. Um, it's only it was only developed about five five years ago. That's how new it is. Um, and it basically works like a pair of molecular scissors almost. Um, it will spot the bit of DNA that you want to cut and cut it. But unfortunately, like a lot of similar techniques, it's prone to not only cutting the bit of DNA that you want to, but it will also cut other similar sequences of DNA, um, which is why scientists globally have been saying this technique really needs to be regulated. It's clearly genetically genetic engineering, and it needs to be regulated as such um, because obviously... These, what are termed off-target effects, can result in unexpected mutations, potentially the production of new toxins, allergens. Um, and if you're not regulating these techniques, then you're obviously not looking for, for these effects, which is deeply concerning because it would mean that they could be going out into the environment and into our food with no safety testing. Lou, just give us an idea now. I, I, this is a very naive question. Wh- where would this sort of stuff be applied? Like, you know, just give us a few examples of where where would they be using this CRISPR? Yeah, so CRISPR is being used across a whole range of different fields. Um, it's, it's showing enormous promise in medicine for, for gene therapy techniques. Um, it's also um, being applied to agriculture, for example, to make crops herbicide-tolerant, um, disease resistant, those similar traits to, to GMOs, um, to older GMO techniques. Um, yeah, it's being used across a whole raft of industries, and I think what's different about CRISPR is it's much cheaper and easier to use. Um, so you can actually get DIY CRISPR kits. They're for sale in the U.S. for 500 bucks, and you can readily import them in, into Australia, um, and there's a whole um, raft of yeah people that call themselves biohackers that experiment on microbes using um, these techniques, which is, again, something that we're really concerned about is the potential for someone to, I mean, not necessarily deliberately uh, produce a dangerous pathogen. They could do it entirely by accident and flush it down, down their toilet and they won't know the, um, what they've done until <laughs> an yeah. epidemic breaks out. So, 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 so people these can buy. techniques are really powerful and, and we think it's incredible that the government's proposing not regulating them. So people can buy these things online and do it at home, is that? That's right. Yeah. So there's a company in the U.S. selling DIY CRISPR kits for yeah 500 bucks. Um, they're quite they're quite restricted in what you can do with them at the moment. You can basically sure. make um, bacteria glow in the dark, um, things like that. But obviously, we're concerned oh. this technique is developing really quickly, and we really need to have regulation in place um, to, keep, to keep up with the technology because obviously the price is coming down and techniques are getting more sophisticated, and, and we really need to yeah, make sure that these techniques are regulated from the start. And one of the things that I, I was reading when, about this is that you can end up genetically modifying animals, and if Australia, <laughs> didn't, right. if it, Australia didn't regulate or has, is, doesn't go down the regulation path, we would be the first country in the world to allow this to happen. That's right, and that's, that's really quite incredible um, that, that Australia would consider doing that. And polls consistently show that the majority of, of people are really uncomfortable with the idea of genetically modifying animals and certainly wouldn't want to eat them. Um, but if these techniques are deregulated in Australia, they'll be deregulated not only in crops but also yeah, in, in microbes and in animals as well. So even the US, which is a very um, pro-GM nation, I mean, they've basically 
not really got a proper regime for regulating um, GMOs over there, but they're still proposing regulating the use of these techniques in animals. Um, and they've also, there was a, a mush, non-browning mush, mushroom that was developed over there using CRISPR and the Food and Drug Administration over there says that they want to assess it for safety before Mm. Uh, being allowed into the food chain because they want to reassure consumers that it's safe to eat. But over here, what our regulator is proposing is that when these techniques are used to make, they're saying just small, predictable changes to the genome, they don't need to be regulated. But unfortunately, as the science is showing us, um, the effects of these techniques aren't predictable at all, which is why you need to assess them for safety. Um, so what we're calling for is is really quite conservative we're just calling for the existing mm. regulation to apply to these new techniques what industry is calling for is really incredibly radical that we don't regulate these techniques at all which we just find incredible right the, the, look i i gotta say phil and i are in the studio here we're shaking our heads mm. at the at the implications of this i i really i'm actually quite stunned by all of what you're saying and and something else that i read is that uh You've been talking about the United States, but in Norway and Austria and even in New Zealand, they're, they're making uh, moves to sort of think about these things. What's been going on in those countries? So, oh, yeah, Austria, the Austrian and Norwegian government commissioned reviews of these techniques, so not only CRISP, but, but some other similar techniques that work, work in a similar way. And they concluded that all of these techniques pose the same risks as older GM techniques, and they need to be assessed for safety um, before they're before they're used in in the food chain, um, New Zealand actually um, last year said that they're going to regulate these techniques as GMOs, and that's largely because they're a big agricultural exporter mm. and they're really mm. worried about market rejection if mm. these techniques are, are deregulated there. Because um, and there's a clear clear risk associated with um, GMOs for ex unapproved GMOs being released into the food chain because. Um, the historical examples, like in 2015, for example, um, China blocked a billion dollars in corn mm, imports mm. from the U.S. because of an, the presence of an unapproved GMO. And Australia could be looking at the same market risks um, if we're to go down mm. go down this path. Um, yeah, because there'll be no way if, if there's no regulation, there'll be no traceability throughout the food chain, and there's no no way of keeping these. Um, mm ingredients out of our food, um, uh, which is also a major concern for non-GM farmers and, and people that don't want to eat GM food, like myself. Exactly. And uh, I'm, I'm amazed that the industry hasn't actually taken this on board when they're thinking about these things. The view of, of uh, the Emerging Tech Project is, is, as you've just said, industry seems to be basically writing the rules. But how can people like us, you know, and I'm thinking about this very seriously right now, is how do we make an intervention in this? What what can we actually do? Well, there's actually there's public consultation going on at the moment, but again, we're really concerned that it's a closed shop. So we um, told our supporters about it, and, and a number of people tried to register for, for public consultation forums that were meant to be going on and, and were denied access. They were told that there were only 20 spots available and they wanted mm. to make sure that a diversity of views were, were heard. And we, we think that really the public should have, everybody should have a right, right to, to have a say on changes that are this that are mm. this big and significant and we're really concerned that the whole process seems to be completely stacked there's actually two processes that are going on at the moment there's the gene technology 
a technical review of the regulations um, which is proposing deregulating less techniques but there's actually a broader review of the entire um, Gene Technology Act um, and again there's a strong push from industry to remove for example the state moratoria on GMOs so states won't be able to mm. say ban GM wheat mm. if mm. they don't mm. want to introduce that on e- economic grounds um, mm. and we're really concerned that yeah industry is basically writing the rules and that there's a cabal of um, scientists and, and the GM, GM crop industry are basically writing policy for the government. Mm. Um, it's, it's quite clearly a complete stitch up. Like if you look back to 2015, um, Barnaby Joyce um, commissioned two, two inquiries, one by the Productivity Commission and um, a House of Reps inquiry as well, both into agriculture agricultural regulation and, and innovation and they both concluded that GM labeling should be removed and that, that the GM the, the state ban should be removed as well on GM crops mm, um, so mm. there's a clear agenda here mm. um, and we're concerned that basically the government's just implementing the policy of the big GM crop lobby groups. Lou there's lots more to talk about absolutely but uh, we've got to go at this point but what I, I would recommend I guess is people listening should go to your website and that's the emerging tech project at fo.org.au to catch up with more and if they need to correspond with you or I, I think there is a is a, a contact detail there as well and uh, I want to uh, thank that's you for that's right yes yeah. yeah. so if you go to our website it's emergingtech.fo.org.au yeah and, and you can sign up for updates on the campaign and how to get involved okay and all the best to you Lou and uh, all your work and keep up the good work yeah thanks so much for having me on the program Louise Sales she's the campaign coordinator for Friends of the Earth's Emerging Tech Project and you heard her talking there about CRISPR the next Frankenstein monster in the tech revolution Dirt Radio is produced by Friends of the Earth and can be heard on Tuesdays um, on 3CR from 9.30am until 10am at http, I did not need to say that, www.3cr.org.au forward slash dirt radio. You can never be too sure. This is true. So how was your weekend? Let's talk, let's talk weekend. Oh, my weekend. Oh my gosh. Do you know what? My weekend was so beautiful. I went to an all day mimosa festival. Um, What's that? So mimosa, which is champagne and juice. At Welcome to Thornbury. It was pouring rain, but that's fine. I was with my girls and stop sipping your tea looking at me like that. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting the side eyes so bad. I believe you out of like that. You are shameless. Um, and honestly, I spent so much time hunting for houses because the rental market is uh, just a nightmare. Yeah. So um, a good balance of like productive but you know alcohol-fueled. What about you? Um, what did I get up to? To be, um, I'm trying to figure out what I got up to because my brain is like, there's there's a lot of fighting going on in my brain. Um, <laughs> brain farts. Yes. Um, what did I get up to? Oh, I went to the NGV. <gasps> did you see the tree yeah. in the L? The tree. Yes, 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 yes. Which was free, so I do appreciate that. That was yeah. nice. I took my little cousins and. Um, Cute. Yeah, we looked around and we did this thing. It's so cute. I got them to um, pose under all like the main um, photos and stuff, and I got them to do like I don't know if it's appropriate to say, but sort of like little cute, like you know, little hip hop signs. And 
and it was so cute like <laughs> they were really shy and they were like i don't think this place i don't think it's appropriate to do it here i said this is the perfect place oh my God. we are owning this place mark, <laughs> mark your territory and get down and give me some gang signs like, <laughs> the ngv could use a bit of intersectionality let's be yeah, real definitely definitely <laughs> but you know what's interesting is i was because when i asked you about your holidays the reason i asked you because mm. i'm being sneaky is with Footscray. You were telling me about the changes in Footscray. How oh, yeah, yeah. It yeah, it's just, it's just interesting. I mean, um, you know, I grew up in Footscray and I've then moved back <laughs> as an adult and lived there or in that area on and off for years and years. Um, but I guess, and, you know, gentrification is easy to see driving down the street and all of that sort of thing, um, but it is so much harder, like unbelievably more difficult now to find a house um, that is affordable and safe and clean and close to public transport because a lot of people don't drive. Mm. Um, it's just so much more difficult. And it was really, it's been really, um, it's really hit me this time around that, you know, my housemate and I are on quite low incomes and, but we also, neither of us drive, so we need to be close to the station or that sort of thing. And it, it's just so unbelievably difficult. And there is a lot of low income housing, but it's at that sort of, um, so competitive at this at this point now there was over 100 people at the inspection wow. for one two bedroom apartment like holy and you know how yeah. how does anybody decide who of the 100 people who are on a low income is the most deserving of that particular house like it was really yeah it's been a pretty oh that's so challenging mm, so and it's a shame because Footscray is you know yeah. as we all know it's one of those places that has been a real hub for low income people and migrant mm. families and people mm. that just need a a safe space to settle and yeah oh that's yeah. so disappointing i've been going to footscray since i was a little kid footscray is amazing during uh, like ramadan mm, yeah everyone's there everyone's like buying yeah um, their meat their halal meat everyone's like shopping at the african grocers which is amazing and on Eid day as well mm-hmm. everyone goes to like the african hair salons to get their hair done and you know there's like all these african restaurants there's these like shisha spots yeah it's it's just a, such a beautiful and ethiopian new year and hub. yeah like all of these yeah incredible diwali goes yeah. off oh my god yes, <laughs> yes 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 yeah it's such a it's such an amazing spot and i don't know it it, it worries me that it's that it, that won't be there for too long and um yeah i'm just thinking about the things that we can do to preserve it yeah it's difficult to know how um i mean i don't i have no experience in this kind of thing mm. but i would really love to find out how um Look, listeners, if anybody has any advice, mm-hmm. <laughs> hit us up because we want to save our suburb. Yeah, hit us on our 3CR, on our 3CR Facebook page. So that's mm. 3CR Tuesday Brecky. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and mm. if there's any petitions or if there's like any community-led um, actions um, surrounding Footscray and, and um, perhaps uh, not so much fighting gentrification but... Um, nipping it in the bar, I guess. Um, yeah, just message us on our 3CR Tuesday breakfast page on Facebook. Yes.
The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defense fund. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash solidarity defense fund. A 3CR supporter. Bisexual Alliance is a non-profit organisation dedicated to raising awareness and supporting people who are bisexual, people who are multi-gender attracted, their partners and their families. Bisexual Alliance runs several monthly discussion groups in and outside of Melbourne to offer support, a safe space to chat about your experiences and to explore others' experience of multi-gender attraction. These groups are for bisexuals, those who are questioning and their loved ones. For more information, visit bi-alliance.org or email info at by-alliance.org Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done by Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law. 6pm Tuesdays. Uh, So our guest that we'd organised for this morning did not quite work out. Um, However, we have some audio recorded at a Black Lives Matter rally in Kensington late last year, which is uh, very important still it continues to be important and especially in the lead up to invasion day um there was a lot of really great solidarity at the rally between indigenous and non-indigenous black australian communities um so have a listen and have a think about it and we will see you at the invasion day rallies hopefully say it loud say it clear Some of you may not know, actually, this week to have this rally organised was a huge struggle, a major effort. We had to deal with police saying, change the name of the rally, saying, 
Will you even be allowed to have it here? We had to deal with the local Labor MP. Tell people in this area not to come. That they'd be trouble. It is. It's shameful. It's an absolute disgrace. We had also from the school, unfortunately, the local principal come out yesterday and tell young people at that school not to come as well. So anyone who's standing here right now is standing up to a lot of oppression, a lot of hatred. And we're standing in solidarity, solidarity with them. Um, to represent our community from what's happened on the 4th of December. Um, it's not, you know, I, like I'm sure everyone's aware what happened that night. It was really brutal. I don't think a lot of coverage has happened past 9 o'clock when the SWATS team came on to the estate and um, was really brutal towards the kids, especially the youth, you know. Um, so that's why I'm here. I'm here to support our community. And it is a rally for Black Lives Matters, but um, all lives matter. And that's why I'm here. Yeah. Well, yeah, the reason I came out, I mean... I politically identify as a socialist for one thing, so obviously I think there's a common interest in fighting against um, racism, like racist scapegoating of you know um, vulnerable people, oppressed people in society. So I think it's like the duty of like you know collective ordinary people, workers, to come out and stand against that because I think like solidarity, that kind of those kind of values historically are how um, you know you can fight against racism and actually one day end it. <laughs> uh, so I went to the um, community meeting that was held uh, just in the community centre over there um, the other day and I heard uh, the accounts of people who lived in the towers and what they experienced that night from both um, like the alt-right and the neo-Nazis and the police and how upset they were and how important it was to them to sort of have some sort of position uh, where they got together and sort of identified themselves to the public as, you know, being hurt and needing better support, so I came down to support them on that. So. I think um, I'm here today to show support to the local residents. I'm not a local resident. Uh, to show support to local residents, especially in regards to what happened to them about a couple of weeks ago, uh, to stand together to show that they're not isolated. Um, often uh, these communities can feel very isolated, and we are here to say that we're in solidarity with you. We know what you go through. We're against racism, and we're in, in support of, of, of you. Events like this, where the community can come together and be strong and be united, um, will help us move forward to working with not only the police, but, you know, um, council and local um, organisations in the community and stuff like that. So hopefully it will all go well. Milo should have never have been allowed to speak here. He was welcomed by the police. He was welcomed by our higher authority. He was es escorted into a place that was built by the people he wants to terminate. This place was, it's built by us and he wants to get rid of us and yet the police paved away and allowed him to intrude and walk in. The police paved away for a hate preacher. He is an actual terrorist and while they did that, they had the backs, they had their backs against the people of Flemington, the people of this community and they had their pepper spray sprays towards us. They did this to a community of people that they already have a strange relationship with. They have a decade history of racial profiling in this very community with these very people and yet they happily turned their backs towards us when we needed it the most. Yay! Yay!
Victoria Police has been stopping black men driving here with a Caucasian girl in their car and asking the girl if she's okay because she's in the car with a black man. They've been asking young black kids off the street if they knew something about the robbery that happened a week ago. They have been getting groups of African kids and asking them stereotypical questions selling them the portrait that they've already painted of them and convincing them that despite being born here, these African kids, these Muslim kids, these different kids will always have to answer to the higher Caucasian authority. They coax them to accept this feeling of being an outsider, ready to be questioned because someone that looks like them is blacklisted in their books. We have reports, we've done our research, we come from Police Accountability Project, we come from legal centres, we've gone into this and we have proof that in this community defined by these parameters that the police continue to harass and racially profile on us based on the colour of our skin and what we bear on our heads. We respect freedom of speech, yes but we do not stand for freedom of alienation. We do not stand for freedom of double standards. We will not allow colorism. We will not facilitate the freedom of police authority to make us feel like we owe them an explanation for the stigma they associate with the color of our skin and the clothes we wear and the religion we follow. There is no freedom in Australia's black history repeating itself in 2017. There is no freedom in being interrogated by the government and the authorities' eyes. What about our freedom? We want freedom from historical oppression and stigma that is associated with our beings because we are Muslim, because we are black, and because we are different. We want that freedom. significant to deserve police protection, not police interrogation. Arab, Asian and white, unite, unite, unite to fight the right, black, indigenous, Arab, Asian and white, unite, unite, unite to fight the right, black, indigenous, Arab, Asian and white, unite, unite, unite to fight the right, black, indigenous, Arab, Asian and white, unite, unite, unite to And that was some audio that we recorded at a Black Lives Matter rally in late December 2017. Can you believe we are already in 2018? Mm -hmm. How time flies by. My goodness. So now we are lucky enough to be joined on the phone by Iris Lee, who is a writer and an activist based in the Kulin Nations. And she has written for The Lifted Brow and she also presents on 3CR's very own Queering the Air. Good morning, Iris. Thank you for joining us. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So um, everybody at the studio was shocked that I hadn't um, met you before or um, run into you, but I was raving and raving about this article that you wrote recently that was published um, on Archer magazine, and it's called Turf's Uprising, Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminist Gatekeeping Womanhood. Fantastic title, P.S. Love the gatekeeping. 
Um, so I was wondering if maybe you could start by telling us what is a turf? Mm. So a turf is an, an acronym that emerged, I think, in 2008 in response to, I guess, like a, a section of feminism that was excluding trans people, particularly trans women. So it stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Um, so, yeah, I guess, like, I think in some ways, I think the term is quite like fair to turf I mean I mean not fair I think like it's too generous because I think any sort of feminism that excludes trans women isn't really feminism so I think like there's limitations to the term but it's become a very like commonly held like term for trans exclusion Mm. kind of like a mild um almost like a euphemism maybe for the way that they actually treat people and the way that people actually feel and are put in danger by their their beliefs maybe yeah, and I think it, I guess it also comes from because it has been a, a strand of feminism that is um, toxic in that way, and there has been lots of debates in feminism about trans women for decades. And I guess it's recognizing that that history of trans misogyny and feminism. I guess like to have feminism, feminism in the words sort of like points to the origins that it is like. Um, is the thing that's happened on the left and in progressive circles um, a lot. Mm. And I um, I have to admit, you know, I was really shocked the first time I heard about TERFs. And look, I, you know, I went to um, Melbourne Uni and studied under Sheila Jeffries in my undergrad and was quite mortified um, to hear some of the things that, that people, that feminists or self-proclaimed feminists say about trans people. Um and so it seems like their arguments are largely based on a sort of biology argument. Is that um, is that usually where it, where it goes? Yeah, I, I would say that it's a particular standpoint that very narrowly defines womanhood in terms of a particular one in particular like cisgender experience. Um, and that's also, I guess, like that runs against a lot of feminism because from like the incumbent he collective, like in the, the Black Feminist Collective in the seventies, like like feminism has a long current of there being like there's no like universal womanhood, like race, um, is trans, class, ability, sexuality, and more. All these things like mean that womanhood is like incredibly diverse, and there is no like universal experience of womanhood. But I suppose. Turf, they narrowly sort of gatekeep the term in terms of to be assigned female at birth um, or like by ultrasound really um, assigned I mean not ultra, whatever like the test they whatever test they use mm-hmm. um, so yeah so there's this narrow gatekeeping of a particular experience and from that it's used to oppress trans particularly trans women I suppose Mm. Yeah, I suppose a lot of it's telling because it is just a lot of the focus is on trans women, but it does like focus on trans masculine people as well. But more of the focus is on trans women, yeah, and trans feminine people and gender non-conforming trans femmes. Yeah, Um, yeah. because there's a lot of focus on like vagina imagery and that sort of like centering the physical elements of cis womanhood. 
um, and and not recognizing gender as something that's not just um, you know a biological sex gender thing. Like it's um, yeah. Um, so yeah. Sorry, I'm just sort of thinking um, in that like because of that. You know, when you are hearing people, feminists talk, a lot of people tend to think that if somebody is a radical feminist or is quite progressive, they kind of have an authority to speak in that space. So I guess a lot of people would listen to people like Jermaine Greer and Sheila Jeffries and these people who have built up their lives mm. as, as feminist commentators. Um, but what are some of the, um, I guess, how do they, how do they phrase it? Like, how do they talk about trans people what kind of work are they involved in um that we should be on guard for that we should be looking out for and we should be standing up against because i know in america that turfs have contributed to things like um campaigning against the rights of trans women to use female bathrooms and those sorts of like really blatant um public facing things is there stuff like that in australia that we can yeah that we can keep an eye out for and yeah um um, yeah, I, I suppose a lot of things are hard to know because they're small groups of people and unless you, you're inside those groups, it's hard to know. And there's not like mass, there's not as big turf contingents as in the UK and US and Australia at the moment, but we have like pockets of turf around. Um, we saw like a sort of organized contingent of turf and also sex and they sort of go hand in hand with sex work exclusionary radical feminists as well. We saw, saw a contingent of them at, at International Women's Day last year. Mm. And sometime, and earlier in this year, they tried to do, do some, like, put up some posters and stickers. Under the, there's a small group called the Untamable Shrews, I think, and they had an event earlier in the year. And so we, sometimes we see an effort to... Yeah, put out a lot of stickers and posters that are um, anti-trans, that are like trans misogynist. We see that sort of thing. Mm. But I think more insidious as well is um, how this plays out in terms of public policy and feminism and feminism in general. Because like ultimately, the agenda of turf is really for trans women not to exist, and that means, mm. and as long as this is kept in a spectrum debate. It means that there's no funding for a whole lot of public health health care for trans people because it's seen as reasonable that we're actually not actually women or not actually whatever gender we say we are. Mm. And that it aids legitimacy, which like keeps um, resources away from trans women, and it's a continuing continual hindrance. And and I think like another point that's worth understanding is the more like subtle ways that gender policing um, happens in feminism that isn't isn't done by turf but it's the way in which yeah that like I suppose a lot of universities like in your background there's like no there's no perspective of trans women there's just mm-hmm. it's like Melbourne Unius doesn't have Sheila Jeffries any, anymore because she's retired, but that sort of thing is what people learn. Yeah. Um, and that profoundly like limits people's understanding, and it it leads to not sort of to like I suppose it leads to 
gender policing that's influenced by it's like how the the trans exclusion seeps through institutions and through social circles. It it's not just the most the most um, outrageous stuff. It's also the stuff that happens in terms of I guess people that have that um that supposedly love trans people but yeah, people in my family and friends when I'm coming out have just like denied the reality of like my existence. But they're not like terse, but it's just like how common these like things are that it mm. yeah, that that sort of trans exclusion and bigotry is just like so pervasive, yeah. Yeah. And when you talk yeah. about um your friends and family perhaps um, not supporting you um, the way that they should. What can people in the, how can people in the community support trans folks? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there's a number of ways. I think um, they, they should familiarise themselves with reading or by educating each other in terms of issues that trans people face in terms of um and thinking of gender in terms of not just I guess I suppose like the cis and trans binary can be it's a bit more can be a lot more complicated than that, but like educate mm. for the people who um, don't yourself know, on feminism. For yep. the people who don't know can, can you describe um what a cis person is? A cis person, okay. So a cis person is a person that whose gender identity matches the gender they're assigned at birth. So a cis woman is, a, is someone that was assigned female at birth and identifies as a woman. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's like, yeah, so so many basic things that people can learn. I think, yeah, so it's like a lot of unlearning as well because so many things we're told, including myself as just, messed up and oppressive is like all these oppressive systems mm. that we might be complicit in, privileged in, mm. oppressed by. And it's just yeah. there's that aspect of it. And I, I think like the other yeah. So no so sorry, you were saying What were you saying? Uh, no, I, I was up. no, that's fine. Um I was doing a so I was applying for a job and usually um when you apply for a job when you ask us for your gender it's either female or male. But the way this question was framed was um what gender do you identify with? Mm. Um is that is that mm. the way to go when it comes to um gender ident- identifications in um official documents and stuff? Yeah, I think like bureaucracies can are like as can pose a lot of problems and I guess administrative violence for pe- people when you can't fit into the right category or like the category doesn't exist to you or yeah you might have legal documentation that doesn't match um your actual like gender identity mm-hmm. so I think like any step that loosens I guess the gender binary in terms of bureaucracy is good and I think it's also worth asking um, I think some things you just don't like why does it matter like why did I need to know mm, gender as well um, yeah especially because there's just so much um, 
you know, so many stereotypes and expectations tied up with gender binaries anyway. Um, you know, is it really necessary to make all of these assumptions about a person just because they've ticked a certain box? Mm. And it's, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, that, this is very true. And, um, I, and Iris, um, when you say um, uh, that, that feminists, because it's, it's one thing for feminists to exclude trans um, uh, trans folks, but in what ways, like your day-to-day living, um, what type of policies um, affect or do they support that discriminate against trans people? C- can, you, can you give us some examples? Um, you mean... That turf support? Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry, I mean, like, like feminism in general. So, yeah, oh, okay. l- let's make a broader. F- um, feminists in general, the type of um, arguments uh, that lead to policies that discriminate mm. against trans folks, what are we talking about? So I think we're talking about a couple of things. It's so it's like what's left out of discussions in terms of... Um, I guess, yeah, it's like you could go into different mm. aspects of it, but in terms of one thing could be healthcare, um, mm. and in terms of feminist, a, a, a feminist movement, like supporting smash of health, like healthcare, the healthcare system is like underfunded. We like, there's lots of gaps in it, and mm. it's like, is like support for the, co- like the, Cost that many trans people face is there support without a specific goal in the push for healthcare, or is there? They're not. Um, and then there's nice discussion around reproductive rights, and that it isn't that is like it can be a range of genders that give birth, in, including transmasculine people. I suppose that, like, so I suppose there's this thing about thinking about, yeah, um, if things, if you, like, if the stuff about that gender, is, that the trans people exist is, like, included in a discussion or is it mm. not, and does that mean that everything's sidelined by, mm. yeah. by that, I guess? Yeah. Because um, I feel like TERFs are yeah. TERFs are like such an easy um, group to identify, but things that we've normalised in society are just as dangerous. Things that we don't think about. The fact that um, I just learned what cis is not that long ago. That I just learned yeah. that um, that that being a woman is a construct. Like things like that, we don't learn at school. We don't discuss. So a lot of us are going into it just. Mm. Um, assuming things are the way they are rather than, you know, there's people have been conditioned, you know, people have been um, taught to think this way. Do you, um, what do you think about the argument that in society it's innate inside the way society is set up to make us think that, that you know, there's only two genders or that um, things work in binaries? The argument that, yeah, what do I think about um, uh, that, um, yeah, that, that, that society is made up in, in binaries. Because a lot of the mm. time we, 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 we don't know that. Like a lot of people, unless you're like really educated or you're, you know, you've got friends who can, um, 
familiarize you with this material. Mm. A lot of us don't know. Um, so, so, so do you think uh, a lot is? Do you think much is being done to educate the community about um, looking at things not in a binary lens? Mm, yeah, I think that's an important question. It's like an ongoing struggle to, like, I guess, unlearn the the sort of education you get in terms of the the status quo. Um, yeah, and I suppose I suppose like a lot of time we're like taught to see things from the privileged position or the default position on any. Things so once, um, once you're exposed to a different perspective, I guess it challenges mm. people's thinking, and it like it mm. challenges. It's just annoying um, that you've got to wait. You. Yeah, it's just annoying that you've got to wait till university to, um, uh, you know, have access to these readings and have, and, and and I guess have access to these different perspectives. You know, I wish. Well, that's why safe schools would have been such a useful thing for so many children I think and also mm. and also parents um, you know it's one of those things that it can be formal education but I think if there's as you were saying Iris as well just visibility in different circles and just not erasure um, so that people are at least aware um, and have the idea in their mind that gender is not a binary and that will come into their thinking in other ways and then Parents will do that in front of their children and those sorts of things. It it has to be a whole community change, I guess. Um. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it has to be. Um. Mm. And I guess, like, there are, like... Yeah, I suppose, like, a lot of young people are, like, finding out about these things through information or through their, like, networks. Mm through the internet and I suppose we've seen safe schools which was actually like kind of really like limited in some ways kind of conservative program like because it didn't cost much money and it was volunteer run and it wasn't really saying anything particularly different to like anti-discrimination legislation Mm -hmm. and it was just like pointing out that LGBTI plus people exist, really, um, <laughs> and providing some education oh, in schools. Okay. <laughs> the very basic, so. yeah. <laughs> No, 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 this is good to know, and um, that's interesting. But as far as the good, like, the good thing, I think, is, like, is with, despite, I suppose, a lot of this stuff not being formally, like, in the curriculum, there are, like, pockets of people that are learning about it, but I think, like, it's quite uneven, and a lot of people... Um, yeah, a lot of schools are quite conservative and, and I suppose to be a gender or sexual minority in that school, and like a lot of schools is quite difficult and I suppose, yeah, mm. it's worrying how the same things are playing out over and over again and I suppose that all it needs to be, yeah, challenged in some way. Mm. Yeah, and absolutely. Be- before we let you go, Iris, uh, one final thing. I think we, we already discussed it, but can you reiterate some things that our listeners and people in the community can do to um, support trans folks? Yeah, I think people in the community should um, should. Ex- 
look at, like, if you have access to the internet, look at reading online or book, but also talk to non-trans people and get your, like, anxieties of your anxieties about gender and talk to, like, non-trans people about it because sometimes just people talk to me about it in ways I'm just a bit, like... <laughs> yeah, I yeah, mean, I just get a bit tired of it sometimes. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and in terms of, any, like, your workplace, if, in your union, if you're, like... Mm. Mm, um, there's all sorts of ways in which you can follow up, like, bureaucratic stuff about... Is there like options in terms of more than two genders? Like, do you have time to, um, I don't know, sign a petition on changing birth certificates, which I don't, yeah, or mm. support all those like material things in terms of healthcare that includes trans people in terms of, um, more because of intersecting oppression, many trans people need public housing, need better welfare, all these things are, like, interconnected. And there's lots of, like, ways in which people um, can struggle together for things that, they, like, that benefit, like, everyone as well. Mm. Yeah. And also listen to 3CR's Queering the Air, of course. Uh, yeah. You'll all learn something. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for joining us today, yeah. Iris. Have a Next lovely Sunday. day. Next Sunday. What time? Next Sunday. Next Sunday from 3 to 4 p.m. Sunday, 3 uh, three to 4 p.m. Get on it, everybody. Perfect. Thank you so much, Iris. Thanks, Iris. Okay, thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. And for anybody who um, that segment might have brought up some stuff for that you need a bit of emotional support after, um, please give QLife a call, which is a national service that aims to keep the LGBTQIA plus communities supported and connected. You can call them on 1-800-184-527. Rumination. 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program. Featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, and Lauren. George is on holidays, but she will be joining us back next week. Um, and right now, we will be discussing that time, the um, uh, alternative news. Let's just get to it. Alternative news. Let's get to um, it. No time get for this. To it. We, don't have, <laughs> we don't have time for your ramblings, Ayan. So, um, uh, do you want to s- start us off, Lauren? Yes. Um, I am... Pretty appalled by this piece of news that I read. Um, Can I just preface what I'm about to say by Mm -hmm. saying that BuzzFeed News is absolutely killing it at the moment. They have a couple of reporters. I'm pretty sure they poached Paul Farrell from The Guardian, um, but they are really breaking some super important stories that Mm. most other news organizations aren't breaking, especially around Australia's secrecy laws and those sorts of things. So if you are interested in... um, yeah, non-mainstream news, which I'm assuming you are because you're listening to 3CR. BuzzFeed News is actually going great at the moment. So, hot tip. Um, but one of the articles that they published last week was highlighting this really important legal issue 
um, that is related very closely to the marriage equality law that just passed federal parliament, and it's related to transgender people being married. So BuzzFeed reported that in all states and territories in Australia, except for South Australia and the ACT, transgender people have to meet four criteria to change their legal sex gender. So they have to be over 18, they have to have had their birth registered in the state, they have to have undergone gender affirmation surgery, and they have to be unmarried. Mm. So BuzzFeed um, understand that the laws were made to prevent same-sex marriages prior to, obviously, marriage equality laws being passed. So um, an example of this was um, or is Senator Janet Rice, a Green senator, and her wife, Penny. So Penny transitioned after she and Janet were married, but she can't change the sex on her birth certificate because it would require her and Janet to get divorced. Mm. So basically people are being forced to decide between marrying someone they love or, as one of the people interviewed in the article said, being recognised as my true self. So these laws have been criticised for ever by transgender advocates in Australia and actually in mid-2017 the United Nations Human Rights Committee after somebody impacted by the laws took their case to the UN. Um, And the UN said at the time that the laws violate people's internationally recognised human rights, which is seems absolutely true. Um, So there's been a bit of a renewed push for the laws to be changed now that marriage equality has been legislated, but um, BuzzFeed also reported that in Victoria this might be difficult because as late as 2016, our state parliament voted to keep them in force. Um, So hopefully, look, the Victorian Attorney General, Martin Pakula, is apparently looking forward to trying again this year, um, but... Unsure how that's going to go, but we will keep an eye on this space and report back. But I was pretty horrified that that is still a thing yeah. in Australia in 2018. You know, every time we say, oh, I know. it's like... <laughs> well, am I even horrified? Yeah, it's, yeah, big time. Um, so what have you been reading about lately? Um, I haven't, I've tried reading the articles, but it's just, it's too stressful. But what I did want to touch on is... Um, the a lot the attention that's been put on the African like young mm. African people, especially young African people living in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Um, on Sunday, if I recall, I think it was Sunday, um, there was a police presence and community presence at tiny shopping centres. So Vic um, police were sort of they put out a tweet saying that they that they were going to be at the tiny shopping centre. Um, along with community leaders, leaders, I think that's what they call themselves these days. And, yeah, that they were, I don't know what they were going to do. Like, were they going to stop people? Were they going to chat to them? Like, is that even necessary? And there was a lot of um, uh, arguments uh, against what the police were doing, saying that, you know, A, this is trumped up, um, that there's no evidence that proves there is an issue. Also... This type of this the task force there's no task force equivalence for like white kids young white kids right and um and there was also a right wing meeting so I think it was Channel Seven mm. Seven News um set in on a meeting or um were around the vicinity of a meeting um I have to double check. Um, where but they had Blair Cottrell speaking was on it? the news. Mm, yeah. yeah, so yeah, so they were there at a um, right-wing talk. And, and it's just interesting because if this had been like a, like a radical Muslim group or, or um, a, a radical like 
um, Jewish or Hindu or yeah, Buddhist. Yeah, yeah. Anybody that's not white and yeah, yeah. cis and Christian. You know, just the way the media also has dealt with the coverage. You know, there was so much excitement around it. And mm. there wasn't as much criticism. It was reported like there was n- there was no criticism about the... Um, the idea that this group was so this group was saying we were getting together as a way to um, come to a solution um, uh, with the immigrant slash African problem. So concerned community members getting together, deciding what do we do about these Africans, right? And that was taken for face value. There was no like the way it was reported. It was there was a lot of like it was objective, which is interesting because the media is rarely objective when it comes to. Um, African, the African community and also one thing that really annoyed me was just these community leaders like community African community leaders need to get together, they need to I feel like the gatekeepers in the African community, um, it's always the middle class, you know, older Africans, the more settled Africans the ones who, you know um, didn't come to Australia as refugees so a lot of their experiences um, aren't the same as the young African kids that are being targeted. So they don't know, you know, what is the issue? Like, why is there unemployment, um, if that is the case? You know, why are young people um, staying out on the streets really late? You know, what um, opportunities exist for young people? Um, what services exist for young people? The, like, where are young African people or African families? Where are they being housed, right? Are they being housed in areas where there's access to, like, community support, good schools, you know, all these things. None of that is looked at. It, there's always, like, the the response has become, you know, punish, like, punish them or deport them. And this whole deporting thing, while that has been happening, um, the, uh, the men on Manus Island are still suffering, right? Mm. So... This has become this African issue has also become a become a way to um, distract us from also what's happening with the asylum seeker community um, on Manus and yeah Peter Dutton is just he he is out here wilding he needs to be stopped he's just too yeah. much and it's yeah. horrifying to think he's going to be in control of just so many huge important powerful organizations soon I just. I can't believe we are handing this man that mm. much power. He he is racist, mm, but mm-hmm. he is like narrow-minded, has no respect for the rule of law, um, no compassion, mm-hmm. and and we're just we're handing him everything. Yeah, like is are we insane? Right. Someone was I saw a tweet on um, uh, I saw someone tweet that Peter Dutton is now probably more powerful than Malcolm Turnbull with the amount of control and access. He he is... So, you know, I was just rambling to you about this report I wrote, which I'm not going to plug on the radio. (laughs) No, please, because I want to read it. I'll send it to you personally. But basically, we did all of this research about um, personal discretionary power, right? Like power that you can't that can't be checked by the courts that cannot be voted on in parliament it's just power that you personally hold as a minister Mm. the prime minister had two of those powers and peter dutton had almost 50 wow and that was just as immigration minister and that was when did i write it like a year ago shout out to anybody from liberty victoria who's listening we wrote it together (laughs) um but uh it's like he he is already more powerful he's been more powerful and now he's going to be like 
it's like in Aladdin, when Jafar becomes all powerful genie, mm. um, getting the wrap up signal. So <laughs> I'm going to go call our next guest and yes, I uh, so community um, uh, announcement. But yes. before we do, um, if you stick with us, um, you, we will be talking to um, Laura Watson from the Australian Council of Trade Union. She's the Indigenous Officer for the ACTU and we will be chatting to her about the Community Development Program and the way it targets um, uh, Indigenous and Torres Strait Island communities in um, remote Australia. Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. Good morning. If you're tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, and Lauren. Um, and right now we will be um, chatting to uh, Officer Lara Watson with the Australian um, Council of Trade Unions. Thank you so much for appearing on Tuesday Breakfast, Lara. Lara. Hello. Hi. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> um, Thank you for having me. I can no, hear you. Yes. Okay. I can hear you now perfectly. Um, we had you on um, earlier in the year um, when you um, created the. Um, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. The First, First Nations, Nations Workers the, Alliance. Yeah. Perfect. Um, and now, before we look at the community development program, can you tell us how it started um, in terms of the forest review? Yeah, so when we, the reason why the First Nation Workers Alliance was formed is because we had community development program workers in remote communities raise their concerns around the, the program and what it was doing to their, their communities. We also had union members that were working in remote communities and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander union members that had raised it with the ACTU um, Indigenous Committee. So we were quite aware of some of the issues on an industrial front, but also on a social justice front. Mm. And uh, we felt that it was basically slave labour and it wasn't well known about because it was happening in remote communities and not in mainstream. Mm. So that's why the First Nation Workers Alliance was formed mm-hmm. um, because CDP or Community Development Program workers weren't actually considered workers under legislation. There was no union to represent them. 
Mm. So First Nation Workers Alliance gave them a voice to be able to raise their concerns with the program and actually have that voice in the federal space and put pressure on federal government to address the issues that were happening under CDP. Mm. And this CDP, I've, used, I've seen the Community Development Program, I've seen that used interchangeably with the Work for the Doll scheme. Is yes. it the same thing? Um, it's a form of Work for the Doll. Mm. So when you look at the difference or the comparison as it sits currently between your remote communities and non-remote communities, there's some stark differences. So in a remote community, you are obligated, you have to participate 25 hours a week throughout the year, whereas uh, non-remote work for the doll averages around 15 hours and only for for six months of the year. And if you're aged over 40, I believe, it's voluntary. Um, they don't actually have the penalties in the non-remote scheme as remote work for the doll does, which is CDP. Mm. So we had participants on this program that were doing jobs that are waged anywhere else in the country and if they had a death in the family or if they had sick children or they were unable to attend an activity more than a couple of times, they actually went without any source of income whatsoever for eight weeks. So basically That's the program so, was yeah. starving out communities. Absolutely. And I've heard people on New Start Allowance are sometimes, because New Start Allowance is less than $300 a week and people yeah. are being fined up to $50. Like, yes. how do they survive? How do they eat? Well, they don't. And this, and this is the issue with the program, which was raised through the Senate inquiry as well. So there was an increase in crime with youth, but that increase, increase was around youth stealing food to feed themselves. We found that there were remote community people that were moving off a country into hub towns like Alice Springs because they just couldn't survive without any source of income and then they would go in and stay with family and friends or they would go on to a job-ready program, not the CDP, that allowed them to actually get an income as opposed to CDP. So there was a lot of issues. There was an increase in mental health. Um, It was just kind of like a domino effect. So if you have one worker that didn't turn up, that was penalised for eight weeks, Mm. then that affects their family. So then there was pressure on the extended family um, and it just kind of ran through these communities like a domino and in a negative impact. Mm. And are there, are there things in the CDP that acknowledges, because sometimes it's hard, uh, women being the carers, um, to, you know, to have to leave their communities and travel so far? Like, is there anything, or people with disability living in remote areas, uh, like, is that acknowledged? Is there things done for them, or are they expected to just go ahead and do it? There, there wasn't too many feel-good stories that we come across with our community visits, mm. but in these remote communities, Services, like if you've got a disability or if you're a carer, are extremely limited to start with. So it's not like us where we live in a city area or in a regional area where we have access to 
services mm. to assist us with disability or with someone that is ill within the family, mm. that's not readily available in our remote communities. So one, to actually apply for that kind of assistance, often they can't do it in the community in which they live, mm. so they have to travel up to three days to first apply and then... Yeah, it's, it's a long, drawn-out process mm. to start with, let alone then having the implications of CDP on top of that. Yeah. So we were, we were actually finding that people were opting to go eight weeks without because it's just too hard to have those mm. issues recognised. Mm. And it's just... It's really is a sad state of affairs. Yeah. I read somewhere that um, uh, in the last two years since this um, policy was implemented, there's been approximately 350,000 fines and um, 53,000 yeah. sanctions. So by all accounts, this doesn't work. So why is government still pushing this policy? Yeah. Well, I know because of the work that the community development program workers have done through First Nation Workers Alliance, and from community organisations putting pressure on government, Scullion is looking at re-evaluating CDP. He's acknowledged that there were components of CDEP that actually worked, and that is paying a wage where people are working in a wage job. But he still champions CDP as a program that worked. He you offer hearing promoting that there was 21,000 jobs. Mm. And, but what he fails to actually acknowledge is those jobs are only for 26 weeks and then people are back onto CDP. So he, he isn't actually looking at the real issues mm. that this program is putting into the community. Right. And he really does need to take a harder look on building an economic base in communities and delivering training opportunities that further into real jobs mm. and real employment, not top-up wages on a welfare system that actually assists the community build an economic base and uplift the community. And there needs to be community control within that community as well. Because mm. it just doesn't make sense that people are doing pretty much the same um, uh, tasks that someone who who is employed would do, right? So yeah. the same out, like similar hours, you know. Um, there's also uh, similar um, expectations. So why is there? Why aren't they being paid? Like it, it doesn't mm. make sense. It, it no, it like doesn't free, make sense. Free labor. It is free labour, it's slave labour. Mm. And it doesn't make sense, but when you've got remote communities and you've got a minority population and this isn't being promoted in mainstream media mm. and people can't actually see what is happening with facts, mm. it's easy to forget what's happening if you don't live there. Yeah. And that was one of our tasks, was raising the issues more broadly so people understood exactly what was happening in these communities. Yeah. And that put pressure on government as well as people actually learnt, oh, my God, this is happening in Australia, this can't.
can't be allowed to happen. It just, you know, yeah, it, it like it, it boggles your mind. But like you said, um, many people aren't aware of it. And I think if if there was more like promotion and yeah. um, if people highlighted what was happening. Um, perhaps people would be outraged enough to do something. Before we let yeah. you go, Lara, sorry, um, are there things that we can do to, um, I guess, bring it to people's attentions or ways to challenge this policy? Yeah, most definitely. Um, you, people can contact their local member to ensure to keep pressure on government that the current CDP program is eradicated and that there is a real wage program implemented that leads to real jobs. People can get on and support the First Nation Workers Alliance and the Wage Justice Campaign for CDP workers through their Facebook or website um, and definitely keep an ear out and have conversations with people more broadly. Mm. So the more conversations we have about what's really happening in our remote community and the injustice that happens there, you know, the more people understand because they're not going to hear it from mainstream media. No. The only stuff they're going to hear is twisted negative stories and there's some really great feel-good stories of our remote community supporting, you know, more broadly community mm. initiatives and um, incentives that they put in place. So it'd be really great just to have those conversations mm, and understand consultation what's is so important. And yeah. I guess that's what CDP, one of the things CDP was missing is that the consultation this is what the community members asked for. And yes. And as we know, um, why Australia never seems to um, want to ask the community that they're uprooting and... Anyways, yeah. sorry, getting sidetracked. This is really disheartening. No, that's all right. <laughs> what Australia needs to realise that our remote communities are often the guinea pigs for what will initially get rolled out more Ex- broadly. Exactly. Ex- I, yeah. And that's that's one of the reasons um, the wider community should know about it. Yeah. As you said, like it's coming, but um, and we will all feel it right now. Just because it's not affecting us doesn't mean um, it's not important. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you for having us. All right, you take care. You too, bye. And that was uh, Lara Watson. Uh, Lara Watson is the Indigenous Officer at the uh, Australian... um, You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Sorry. I always forget the acronym for the Australian Council of Trade Union. And that is uh, all for us. Um, I think we're running a bit late. So we will see you next Tuesday. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.